This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Megan Sumaraki is our very special guest in this coach developer conversation. Modern Learning Officer Mark Scott and I chat to Megan about making learning memorable. In the conversation, we explore the principles of spaced learning, retrieval practice and interleaving, discussing the implications for practice design and coach learning. It was brilliant chatting to Megan and we hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as we did recording it. Yeah, hi. So first, thank you so much for having me. This is a, a fun new space for us to talk about how we can apply the science of learning in places where it will actually have an impact. Um, I am a cognitive psychologist by training. My undergraduate work uh, was in psychology, and I have a minor in child development and family studies. I then did my master's at Washington University in St. Louis in experimental psychology and the brain behavior and cognition program. So learning how to design and conduct experiments in that realm. And then my PhD is from Purdue University, specifically in cognitive psychology. So what I do is I study how our mind works, basically. I study how we take in information and process that information, how we try to store it over time, and then how we actually retrieve it and use it. I try to understand how those pieces work in addition to our perception and our attention, basically all of just the building blocks of our mind. And then I take that information and I think about ways we can apply that in educational settings. So what would, what would be the best way for a learner to try to learn information that they've never been exposed to before? What's the best way for them to continue to reinforce that information over time? How can groups of learners with instructors, like a coach or a teacher, work together to try to improve learning in the classroom or in some more non-traditional, quote-unquote, settings? Um, and I, I do that research, but then I also think it's really important to make sure that that information is is used and can is is widely known by a lot um, a lot of people. And I think that um, we as a field have done a really bad job up to this point of making sure that we are communicating with people who are educating others and making sure that we're listening to the people who are out there educating lots of different types of people every day. Most of us are professors of some sort. I'm a professor at Rhode Island College, so I do teach. I'm an educator, but it's a somewhat narrow slice of the world. I have college students, traditional and non-traditional. I have a diverse group of adult learners, but that still doesn't cover everybody. And so for that reason, um, I co-founded a group called The Learning Scientists, and our goal is really just to make the science of learning accessible to anyone who wants to know about it, whether that's a student, a teacher, a professor, a coach, someone who's teaching adults how to do their jobs, someone who's trying to learn about um, just anything just for fun. I mean, really anybody to try to make it free and easily accessible. And so with the Learning Scientists, we have a website, learningscientists.org, that has a lot of free resources. We have our own podcast. We have a blog, really just trying to get the information out there. And one of the things that we really focus on is 
bi-directional communication with educators. And so um, I think this will be really fun. We'll talk about what it is that all of you do and how we can take the science of learning and, and apply it to what you're doing. This might be a really obvious question uh, to you, Megan, but maybe it's worth asking. So in, in your world, how, how do you measure the success of what you do? Um, yeah, so that's a that's a difficult question. Um, so in my world, in terms of experimental psychology, so testing learning strategies, for example, we would design some sort of learning assessment to try to figure out how how the learner is performing. And, and we would want a lot of different types of assessments. So we might design some sort of test or exam. We might just ask the individual who's participating in the experiment to tell us everything that they can remember about the uh, about the thing that they've learned. We might need them to actually do something. It's really going to depend a lot. And the goal would be to have as many different types of learning assessments as possible. We use um, what I like to refer to as the lab to classroom model, which really takes basic research to the start where we are using somewhat artificial settings, but that allows us to determine cause and effect relationships. We really want to know what thing is causing learning. And then from there, we ramp it up to the point where we're in the actual live setting and learning would be measured however a teacher would, would measure it, whatever their, um, their benchmark would be. So it might be looking at their grades, performance on some sort of formal state test in my case, or those larger, say, GCSEs um, in, in the UK. Um, but it really can mean a lot of different things. Now then, if we kind of go a step up from that, how would I measure what I'm doing as a science communicator? Am I being effective there? That gets a little bit more tricky. It's hard to do randomized control trials of, of educators learning about this stuff, right? So it would be really hard to take this podcast and say, okay, I'm going to randomly assign people who are in the coaching industry to listen to this or prevent them from listening to it and then see if it has an impact. We just can't, I, I haven't figured out a way to do um, to do randomized control trials of podcast episodes or, or that type of thing yet. Um, and so really it's more sort of looking to see if if instructors are utilizing the strategies that we that we know are effective mm -hmm. from the more controlled research, are are we increasing our reach? Um, you know, the Learning Scientists website is accessed by over 99 countries in the world, and so we can we can say, okay, we're we're broadening our reach in that way. Um, it sort of depends on on what we're asking in terms of measuring success, but I think it does become more and more difficult the more realistic we get. And that's where those basic research studies can be really helpful, where we can we can isolate the cause and effect relationship and say, yep, we know that this is producing learning and we can scale this up so that we can um, predict how it would perform in other scenarios. Cool. That, that, that makes lots of sense. And I think just to set the scene in terms of the context for our conversations today for everyone listening, what we'll talk about is... Uh, the priorities for coaches who are designing a practice and, and explore some ideas around what coaches might want to consider and think about when they're designing a, a coaching session other than just the, the technical stuff that they would normally think about which goes into there so how, how do coaches design for learning to make it really memorable and for me i really hope that some of those messages messages then translate to 
the people who are supporting coaches. So a, a coach developer or a tutor or, or a mentor who, who's working with, with a person in, in that environment. Uh, but before we get stuck into that, Megan, kind of a question I just wanted to ask you, because we're talking about learning and, and making learning really memorable, it'd be awesome to know kind of from, from if, you, if you think back, what's been a really memorable learning experience or learning moment for you? Yeah, so um, I I was in school for a very long time um, from kindergarten when you're actually I was in preschool starting when I was two. And then, you know, preschool, kindergarten in the U.S. all the way up through 12th grade for us when you're 18. And then I did four years of undergraduate work, two years of my master's, three years in my Ph.D. Now I'm a professor. So I've just been in school the whole time. Um, but one thing that really kind of pops out to me um, is that I when I was younger, my family really promoted education and, and focused on the importance of learning and not just in the classroom, but but all the time. In the summer, my mom would take us onto the bookmobile. So a little, a little, you know, bus type of thing that would drive around and you could wait at the corner and go on and take out a book and have it for the summer or for a couple of weeks in the summer and then give it back. And we focused on those types of things, um, you know, visiting museums in the summer, all of that. Um, but, but it, of course our grades were always really important. And I had a teacher, I think it was when I was in the fourth grade, we were learning how to do long division. And, um, you know, as a young girl interested in math and logic and science, you know, I, it, it would have been actually easy and common to sort of smash my love for math or science or to convince me that maybe I should be doing other things, especially because I also showed an interest in creating things and, um, you know, art and cre creativity to some extent, not that I can draw or anything, but um, I, I, I am creative in some ways. Um, and I remember this teacher, I was asking about long division and asking, you know, how many digits could you add? So, you know, we learned you put the the little number into the first number and then you do the remainder and so on. And I was like, how far out can this go? And she said, however far you want. And so I just took a sheet of paper and turned it kind of sideways and made a gosh, it must have been like 50 digits or something. I don't know. And then just kept taping paper down and sitting with my little ruler and pencil and drawing my little arrows and doing the remainder. And I divided, I think, probably three into this massive number. I had, by the end of it, I had this big thing and she just let me sit on the floor with tape and paper and rulers and, and create this like weird math thing that then I was super proud of and was frankly too big to even go on the refrigerator. And I, I remember that. Um, and now as a, um, as a, a, a woman in math and science, I, I think about that and think, wow, thank goodness that that teacher didn't sort of roll her eyes at me or, focus on the artistic piece of it over the math or anything along those lines. Um, thank goodness. Right. Because it really could have changed. It could have changed my trajectory. And we know that that happens a lot, um, particularly with young girls when we're talking about math. Mm, yeah. That's a brilliant example. And as you were talking, I was thinking in a similar way about the, the experiences or, or the experience a coach can have on uh, young people taking part in sport and then their ongoing participation within the sport and their motivation to want to continue actually is based a lot about kind of how the coach responds to the stuff that they're interested in and the things they like doing in the practice. So kind of fast forwarding to now then, when you look back, are there any principles that that teacher um, 
kind of applied that you you can you could identify now as being really effective for making that a really memorable learning experience. Oh gosh, you know it's funny. Uh, I know all of these principles now, um, and I I know how to learn now, and I I. I'm pretty good at taking information and trying to learn it, integrate it. I know these strategies, but I was pretty oblivious when I was little. Um, and I think most of us are. She might have been using these principles. I have no idea. I can't remember. All I remember is that I got to do this big art project on the floor. Um, and it was, I, I can I can say I was definitely utilizing retrieval practice, which is this idea of bringing information to mind. I was executing the procedure. Retrieval practice isn't just about memorizing information. So it wouldn't have been remembering that three goes into my 50. I mean, who knows what those digits even were, right? I was just making them up. I wasn't memorizing that, but I was practicing the procedure of putting three into all of these different, um, all of these different pieces. I'm pretty sure it was probably three because I have this memory of loving multiplying things by three. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's the first one we learned other than like simple ones and twos. I don't know, but I just kind of like it. So I'm guessing that that's what it was. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I think that's applicable to coaches because you are not necessarily trying to get your learners to memorize things. Maybe they need to memorize rules of the game Maybe they need to remember when to do certain things or what order things go in. But a lot of it is what we might just sort of refer to as muscle memory. So learning procedures and retrieval works well in that scenario. Um, I know we were engaging in what we would call spacing, which is spacing out learning over time. That's another one that's really great for motor skill learning which is the the realm that you're in. But for me, it would have been just spacing out the practice of long division. I know we did a little bit each day. Um, interleaving, mixing up the numbers that I was dividing. I can think now of all of the strategies I was using, but as a little kid, I was oblivious. And I can't remember if the teacher was doing those things intentionally or if it just happened. I think that happens a lot with us even when you've been in a learning domain for a long time, we tend to think, oh, we're experts because I've been learning for so many years. But I don't know, even someone who knows, even if you have a great teacher who's teaching you those things, you aren't, you're a novice learner. And so you're not grasping sort of the depth of what's actually happening when you're that little. I, I really, I even though education was was uh, so important in our family and, and to me, and I found it fun. I, I think back, I'm like, wow, I was just sort of bumbling along doing whatever anyone told me. And I guess that's appropriate for a nine-year-old, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what we all do really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned three, three things there, which I think would be brilliant to be able, be able to explore. And I guess, again, just setting the scene for coaches, um, all of our coaching contexts are going to be different depending on the age and the stage and the, the level of the, the, the athletes or the participants who we're working with. So I think for anybody listening to this, maybe after each of these, these different areas that we're going to just touch into and explore, it could be a good opportunity to press pause and just think about what this could mean for you. So the first one you, you mentioned, Megan, was about retrieval practice. Um, so what is that for, for someone who's never heard of retrieval practice before? So what you just asked the listeners to do, pausing, 
thinking about how something could apply. That is retrieval practice. So I love this. We're getting, we're getting really meta here. Um, retrieval practice is about bringing information to mind. So a really simple example, no one has said my last name since the beginning of this, of this episode. And so you can think back and say, what was, what was that woman's last name? And if you can bring my last name to mind, then you have retrieved it. Sometimes we think of our long-term memory as being really long. So if I were to ask you, what did you have um, for breakfast this morning um, for, for you as we're recording this, um, for you in the UK, it's the afternoon. So thinking back to the morning, you might think, oh, well, that's still short-term memory because it's within a day. But it's actually long. Even my last name is, if you remember it, in your long-term memory. And so bringing this information to mind, retrieving it from your mind is retrieval practice. Um, and, and also we can always give feedback and feedback can help. So my, not that this is useful at all for you to have memorized, but la my last name is Samaraki. Um, but, and because I don't want anyone, you know, being like, now oh, I got to figure it out. I have to rewind. Um, so, so that's bringing the information to mind. And we know that Retrieval helps us learn things by, you know, giving us feedback on what we know and what we don't know, maybe feedback on what's important and can make us more efficient in the future. So if you were to ask your learners to try to execute some procedure and they could not do it, then you could say, okay, well then now we need to practice that more. That can help. Retrieval can help in that way, but it can also, it has this direct effect on learning where retrieving the information actually makes that information more durable and easier to apply. So if you're pausing and trying to think, okay, how would retrieval practice work in my coaching context? You are retrieving what retrieval is and then thinking about applying it, that's going to make it easier for you to remember and apply in the future. So that's, okay. that's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Mark, at work, you, you, you talk a lot about learning to learn. So does the retreat, retrieving and thinking about retrieval uh, practice, is that, is that coaches learning to learn? All of these strategies um, we could use ourselves um, as coaches who want, who want to learn. So that's, that's a way that, that we can learn as coaches as, as well, absolutely. Megan, I'm interested in so the... The retrieval practice part, could, could you just tell us a little bit about, like you mentioned, in, in sport and muscle memory, and, and actually we want people to be able to, to repeat things, but in different scenarios normally. But there's the, the difficulty level is, is something that, that coaches like really need to consider. So with that, with that retrieval practice in mind, and, and where, where does the difficulty level come in there? And, and how can we kind of get try to get that right for everybody? Yeah. So um, in terms of, I, I mean, when we think about just trying to remember information, if we tell somebody to retrieve and they can't do it. They just, they, they don't really remember much. They're basically staring at a blank sheet of paper. Then you're, they're not going to get as much out of that retrieval as if they had actually retrieved. Now, there is some research suggesting that an attempt to retrieve, even if you fail, quote unquote, um, that doesn't mean you're failing. It means you're working on it. But quote unquote, if you don't, you know, you don't retrieve, 
um, there might still be some benefit to that. But ultimately, you need to actually retrieve it in order to gain the benefit, or at least some of it. And then over time, you can keep getting better. So when we're talking about learning a skill, um, sort of the, the we would call it a procedural memory because it's something that you're learning to do, like riding a bike or um, kicking a football or whatever. Um, those types of things, it's, it's going to be similar. So if you give them a procedure or a skill that is so complex that they can't really do it, you're going to have to break it down in some way and scaffold in some way to let them practice. Um, so that might be, you know, breaking down the first, the first way they might approach a skill. So even, and this is where my, um, my lack of athleticism is going to come out. I, I was a track and cross country athlete athlete when I was in middle school and then early in high school I quit when I was about 15 because my knees were just getting wrecked um and my coach was giving me like a minor ibuprofen habit um and I started getting like light stomach ulcers that's like a whole separate thing but at 15 I was like this is a little much for me I'd like to do something else um so but you know approach even just like in track how do you approach a hurdle so when you're jump, you know, jumping over the hurdles on the track, how do you, what would be the first approach? Don't try to just jump over it, you know, first thing. Let's work on the approach, the first few steps, something like that, breaking it down into little pieces um, so that, so that they can, can actually do it. Um, now, one thing we're going to have to kind of bring spacing in here. I know we're talking about retrieval, but they go really well together. Um, I think, in athletics and in education as a whole, we do that type of practice a lot, but we tend, especially with procedural skills, motor skills like this, we tend to then just want to practice that piece over and over and over again until it seems like we've mastered it. So they might have the the track athlete approach a hurdle a hundred times to practice the footing. And then it feels like they've got it down. And then they might say, okay, now you've got that. Let's add another piece and never revisit. Spacing says that we should space the practice out over time and that we'd actually be better off by doing little pieces of this each day rather than spending an entire, you know, coaching session, an entire afternoon after school or whenever it is, you know, that hour and a half just focusing on this one thing and doing it over and over and over and over again, that might help you in the immediate moment. By the end of that session, you're probably really good at it, but that does not mean that you'll maintain that in the long run. So focusing on little pieces and spreading it out will be better so that you're practicing the skill, but you're also spacing the practice of the skill so that you're always revisiting. Am I, am I making sense? Completely, completely, absolutely, yeah. I think just just something else to, that I think we're bringing in there is um, the bit you said about that actually that I resonated with it as well when you said that you knew the strategies, you know the strategies now, but you didn't then. And as as an ex teacher, I think like even when I was teaching, I probably stumbled across some of these things and did them without realizing a little bit. Probably, I definitely know more about these strategies in my current role here. Um, but there's also the bit around like that the learners there don't know that actually this is good for them. So 
that illusion effect that, that you've just been describing there about actually, I think it, it feels better when I do 100 repetitions. Why are we only doing five and then moving on? Um, so I, I think that's it's just an interesting one to how do we how do we get around that? I guess is a, a bit of an open question. That's a struggle. And I, you know, if I was designing our cognitive systems to learn the types of things that we need to learn now um, in in today's today's society, if I was designing it, I wouldn't design it this way. Um, but what I what I would do actually is make it so that cramming worked and worked in the long run because it feels good. It feels like that's what we should be doing. Um, but it unfortunately, the things that tend to work well in the long run are the things that feel like they're not working. So for example, the 100 repetitions all in a row tends to feel really good. Um, but you have to override that a little bit because it feels good now because it's preparing you for right now. If you are talking about, let's say it's, you know, five minutes before a match is going to start um, or some sort of game or some ultimate assessment of how you're doing um, in an athletic context. Um, sure, cram the thing that you struggle with right before so that you can make sure that you're good with that. Um, obviously making sure that you don't overexert and those types of those types of things. Um, but if we want to learn in the long run, we really do need to break it up. And this is true of trying to remember information for an exam too. Students love to cram because cramming works in the short term. And if you ask them how well they'll do right after cramming, they think it's much better than if you ask them how well they'll do after doing a spaced retrieval practice session. Um, but unfortunately, in the long run, the reality is the opposite, where the thing that felt bad actually produces more learning and you do better. The thing that felt really great often leads to problems down the line. So um, if I were designing a system, I'd make it so that our assessment of how we're doing would perfectly match how we would do in the long run. But unfortunately, that's just not how it works. It's a it's a real tricky one, isn't it? And mm -hmm. I, I know that as as a coach myself and working with other coaches at times, coaches like that they like it when sessions when coaching sessions are going well. It's like <laughs> that it's working kind kind of thing. That's like a it's a bit of a feel good thing for the coach itself. So I think that's maybe something else that we another hurdle, if you like, mm -hmm. that, we, that we maybe need to get over. Could, yeah. could you give us a little bit of information about so why is that why does that space retrieval the the desirable difficulty if you like why why is that good why does that why is that better well so we can ask why is space retrieval better overall um and we could also ask why is it better from a metacognitive standpoint um so when i say metacognition i just mean our ability to assess our own cognitive system. So do we know the state of our learning? From a metacognitive standpoint, spaced retrieval is better because it avoids this inflated level of confidence. So if you've just done something a hundred times in a row, you've probably gotten it to a pretty good spot. It's a, probably better than it was, you know, on repetition too. And that makes us feel like we've mastered it. But because that doesn't 
mean, that doesn't stay with us forever. It's not like once you've learned it, you're forever good. I, I mean, I, I know that I know how to ride a bike. I learned how to ride a bike when I was a kid, but I guarantee you if I get on a bike now, I have not been on one in a few years. I'm going to be a little wobbly and unsure. Um, and, and getting on the bike after a space of not having done it is a better assessment of how I'm going to do now than, than at, you know, if I were to think back to when I rode my bike every day as a kid. So from a metacognitive standpoint, in that we are not going to be able to do that one step or one thing just repeatedly forever to maintain it, it's good to test ourselves after a bit of a space to see how well we're maintaining it over time. Does that, does that part make sense? In terms of the, the actual mechanism, why does spacing and why does retrieval actually produce learning? Um, I'm not sure we actually know exactly why spacing and or exactly why retrieval produces learning. It does have something to do with thinking back to a prior episode. Um, it has something to do with being able to connect it in terms of memory. Um, but I'm not sure we have the answer to that exactly. Um, but we do know that the things, in order to remember, we have to forget a little bit. Um, essentially, spacing and doing these smaller repetitions allows us to forget a little bit so that then when we perform it the next time, we actually have to go through the good processing of figuring it out rather than just sort of rote doing it without thinking. Now, I think with skills, that reasoning is going to be a little bit different. Um, but it def the spacing in between definitely does help us with motor skills. I could give you, like, let's say I gave you an example of trying to add three numbers together. Let's say I had you add um, 20 plus 17 plus 33. I don't know what the answer is, but we could sit here and we could figure it out together. And then, so what did I say? 20 and now I've forgotten what I've said. So that's part of the problem. 20 and 17, right? So that's 37. And then we'll add 33. So um, 70. Am I right? If yep. I'm wrong, I'm very sorry. But let's say the answer is 70. Let's say it's 70. So um, we just went through the process of figuring it out. That is good processing that produces learning in our example. Now, if I ask you, okay, now I want you to add 20 plus 17 plus 33, you're not going to go through that same process. You're just going to say the answer is 70. That we're short circuiting the good processing, right? We're not engaging in that same level of inquiry. And if we use this as an analogy, that's what cramming does. It allows us to just remember the answer and allows us, it doesn't require us to, to go through the effortful process of figuring it out. And we know that that effortful process is what produces learning. Now, obviously, we're not talking about memorizing the answer to the, that little math problem I just gave. But if we think of it as an analogy and we think of the going through the calculations as the thing that produces good learning, we can see why if in two weeks I emailed both of you and said, hey, tell me the answer to, and I gave you my same math problem. You wouldn't remember the answer. You would go through the same calculations again. And so by spacing, you're engaging in the good processing twice. So it's sort of counterintuitive, but you have to forget a little bit in order to remember. Now, I know this does also work with skills, um, 
but I don't think my analogy works as good with athletic skills, but um, I, we definitely have research suggesting that spacing is really good um, is really good regardless. Now it does mean that it's going to be more effortful. And so something you mentioned, um, Mark, that, that the coaches love when things seem to be going well and the athletes are, are doing well. And it looks like we're, you know, you're smooth and, and they, they know what they're doing. They're playing well together. They're engaging in these skills. Well, that's true in the classroom too. Teachers love when it looks like all of the kids are mastering what they're trying to learn unfortunately, that's a little bit of a trick. And so as, as instructors, what, whatever we're doing, whether it's teaching a skill or, or teaching math or whatever, we need to remember that performance doesn't need to be optimal during practice in order to produce long-term learning. And that's, that's a little bit of a, it's a counterintuitive for us too. It's a little difficult to wrap your head around. And I think that's why sometimes these strategies can be a hard sell. I, I think that's fascinating. And the, what you mentioned earlier, Megan, in order to remember, we have to forget a little bit. I think that if, if there is a, a soundbite to, to summarize this discussion, I, I hope it's that. Um, a coaching friend of mine um, a few weeks ago said to me that a coach's role is to interrupt forgetting. Um, mm. I think that, that kind of ties in really nicely with, with what, yeah. what we're saying. Now, Mark, I'm, I'm sat here trying to, trying to link this back to what it looks like in practice and what it looks like in a, in a coach's world. Now, in, in terms of that, that retrieval and, and the, the spacing out of things, much earlier on in the conversation, Megan, you mentioned, well, that long-term memory could be within a day, within maybe thinking back to the start of the conversation or the start of the practice. Mm-hmm. So if the coach is, is listening to this thinking, right, I, I, I'm keen to have a go and and maybe apply some of these principles into the work that I'm doing and say they're helping their athletes develop a new skills, perhaps something they've not done before. Is there an appropriate amount of time or is there an indicator to a coach to say, well, what should that spacing look like within the same practice when the practices are linked together? Is Is there almost something that coaches can think about to say, well, this is too long and and this is too short in terms of what that space looks like? This is always the question. So with, with all of the different domains, this is always the question, what's the perfect amount of space? And the answer is, I don't know, because it's going to depend on a lot of different things, like just the skill of the individual. And, you know, even if it is something new, how experienced are they in this domain at all? How much natural talent do they have in this area at all? Have they gotten enough sleep? Did they have an appropriate breakfast, lunch, what, what have you? Are they focused? There's so many aspects of it that, that make it tricky. And so I think what we like to say is that spacing helps a lot trying to figure out the perfect amount of space is going to take a lot of time and it's probably going to lead to only minimal benefits above and beyond just putting in some sort of space. And let's say I told you that the optimal amount of space was 18 hours. Well, what what do you do with that? Are you going to have them come in at 6 a.m. and then have them come back at, what would that even be, 9 p.m.? I'm not even sure. Right? So, you know, we're working within 
real constraints as well. And so I suppose if it's a very difficult skill and it's something that is really new for them, letting them do some repetition on the outset to get it down um, is, is a good thing. Now, I remember when we were learning certain, you know, trying to learn how to, in cross country, r- run effectively down a very steep hill or go up something or around something, we would kind of get in line and do it one at a time and then get to the back of the line. That's even producing a little bit of spacing. I give it a go. I get some feedback. I then have to wait a few minutes before it's my turn again. Now, there's there's energy benefits to that, right? Because you can't just keep sprinting down the same hill repeatedly. You'll, you'll fall down or, you know, you'll, it's too much training, but, but in terms of spacing, that might be enough space for the beginning little bits. And then maybe you then say, okay, now we're going to, we, you've all done that five, six times, you know, you you're, you're doing well, uh, we're going to go try something different. And then at the end of practice, we're going to do a couple more repetitions of it. And you know what, those two that we do at the end of practice are not going to be as good as the ones we did at the beginning because of the space. And we are okay with that. That means that we're making progress and we're challenging ourselves, not that we have already forgotten everything and we're doomed, right? So kind of even just knowing about the strategy and the fact that the strategy works, but that it forces us to struggle can be helpful, right? That's a a place where the coaching can really, can really help the athlete who might feel discouraged or whatever. And then, you know, a couple days later, try it again. Um, With spacing, we know that we tend to get big benefits when there's sleep in between. So no matter how much time we're talking about, if there's sleep in between, that tends to be better. So 12 hours of daytime is not as beneficial as 12 hours of sleep time or, you know, eight or nine hours in between. Um, And so then just revisiting it, you know, beginning a practice each day for a little while or the end of practice each day for a little while. And the curve, they'll forget a little bit, but as the coach, they're interrupting that forgetting and kind of boosting them back up. And over time, you should be able to spread out the spacing a bit more. Some um, some learning scientists suggest this expanding spacing where you start out with less space, like maybe the hour, hour and a half, and then you know stretch it out to where there's much more space over time. That expanding pattern might work well in this context. I think there's a, I think there's so much in, in that. And again, as Tom said, just bringing it back to to coaches. And and I think there's again, I think sometimes there's a thing that we don't want to go. But you just said a couple of days later, let's try that again. I think there's I think there's there's almost a reticence to do that sometimes with coaches. Like we we feel the need to to do something different next week, if that makes sense. Um, whereas your example from before about, you know, the, the going over the hurdle and actually just thinking about, can we plan this out that actually we're going to, we're going to focus on the run up bit and then it, it might be a leading leg and, and add, so adding things on to where we can actually retrieve those, the, the, the things that we've already learned, but maybe we're adding things on as well and, and mixing that up. And I think that that potentially leads us in to a bit of, of what interleaving is and, so I don't know if you could I don't know if you could tell us a little bit about interleaving what that is and and how and when that could work. Yeah, you totally read my mind. So interleaving is this idea of jumbling up the content. 
So taking um, a bunch of different things that you're learning and mixing it so that you're not just doing skill A, skill A, skill A, skill A, and always, you know, then moving on to B, you're, you're jumbling it. Um, now, of course, with going over a hurdle, you do have to approach and then, you know, the leading leg goes first. You, you can't, you can't make the leading leg go first and then do the approach that it's never going to work out quite that way. Um, so for some things, there's going to be an order, but maybe you practice hurdles for a little bit and then maybe you switch to something else. Um, mixing them up and swapping the orders and getting the athlete to practice these different skills um, in, in a bunch of different ways is helpful in and of itself. Now, in the lab, when we're talking about learning, say, learning how to solve math problems or something, we can isolate the effect of spacing and the effect of interleaving and, and separate those. And we know that they are two separate things that produce learning. But in practice, interleaving and spacing go hand in hand. So if you are learning one particular skill, you're focusing on just the approach of the hurdle and maybe, you know, lifting that leading leg, but not going over yet. You might practice that for a little bit, but then rather than do that, you know, the whole afternoon and then the next day do something different. If you're bringing in a bunch of different skills and then you have to keep repeating that each day, you have produced interleaving and spacing because when you add other things in, you're putting space in between the next time you do the original skill. Um, and again, this leads to what looks like lower performance. Um, so I'm going to give an example from math learning um, because I think that this will map on really well with some of the things that that you guys have been saying. Um, so there is an experiment by, I think it was Taylor and Rohr, or Rohr and Taylor, I can't remember the order, but they did this experiment with fourth graders, so 10-year-olds, learning to solve different types of math problems related to geometric shapes, calculating the number of angles, the number of sides, the number of faces, all different things. And the kids that learned in an interleaved fashion just had all of those problems mixed up. So they never knew what the next one was going to be. They were solving a bunch of different ones. And they made more mistakes. They were only getting about 80% through practice. Whereas the kids that blocked and got to do, you know, maybe 10 in a row of doing the angles and then switched to 10 in a row of doing the faces, you know, so they, they mastered one skill and then they mastered the next skill and so on. They were getting closer to 100%. And if we stopped there and looked at it, we'd say blocking leads to greater learning because they were mastering it. The kids in the interleaving group were only getting 80%. And you might think that's, that's inferior to the 100% method. But then one day later, they took a learning assessment, which was like normal learning assessments where they're not just doing you know, 10 of this problem, 10 of that problem, the exams tend to be interleaved. And so the problems were jumbled up on that learning assessment. Kids that were getting 80%, the interleaving kids were at about 76% the next day. The kids that were getting 100% dropped down to like 30 something just one day later. So if you stop at the end of the one practice session and say, how well did we do today? you might think not great, but that doesn't mean that it's always going to be not great. But we tend to, when we block and we cram, we tend to lose it very quickly. 
Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. Mixing up the skills might lead, might make it look like they're not performing as well. Um, but that, but that does work quite well in the long run. And we always say life comes at you interleaved. So when I'm talking to medical professionals, I say, you don't get to say today, we're going to see all the patients that need this particular, um, particular blood pressure medication to solve their problem. So just throw them at me and I'll just write that prescription over and over and over again. And then tomorrow we'll deal with a different problem, right? It doesn't work that way. The patients come in and you don't know what you're dealing with and it's come, they're coming at you interleaved. I would imagine it's similar in athletics. You don't know what the next thing's going to be in a, in a game. If you're playing football, soccer for the, for those in the U S football, um, you don't know what type of, of defense move you're going to have to play next. You're having to think on your feet. And so the game comes at you interleaved. So why wouldn't you practice it that way? Mark, you, you might have to help me with this because you, you, you two hold a lot more expertise in this area than I ever will. So uh, when I'm listening to you, Megan, I'm grinning because you just talked about making more mistakes and I hear this so often, and I, I recorded a podcast a few weeks ago with a guy called um, Damien Hughes, who, who talked about um, setting error targets for athletes in practice, not to just deliberately go out and, and mess things up, but to go out and, and have the highest intentions of what they want to achieve. But because they're trying lots of different stuff out to solve the problem that's in front of them, they're going to make mistakes. And because of that, they'll probably learn some stuff along the way. So that, that, that just resonates hugely. And I'm, I'm th trying to think about this in interleaving and how that looks in a sports context. Mark, am I, from your perspective, if I'm a coach and I'm designing games and thinking about the games-based approach to practice, however that might be, so there's almost lots of different things going on within a moment. There's lots of information coming at the athlete. Then for me, that's what, interleaving looks like in practice i love that that life comes at you interleaved and and you're right in in terms of sport that the game if it is a game so i think there's i think diff, different sports maybe not if if you're doing a routine as an example in gymnastics or something like that that might be different but in a, in it certainly in a game that that comes at you interleaved so this brings in something actually i'd, I'd love to ask you megan about interleaving because um the games-based approach is a, is is one approach, but I think then if we only do that games-based approach, then are we are we going to miss out on on some other type of skill development that might come in? And linked to that, the bit that I kind of want to ask you really about interleaving totally different topics against trying to keep the topics that you're doing um, trying to keep them similar or linked, um, and and also. Sorry to throw all of this in at you all at once, um, but yeah, when do we when do we introduce the interleaving? So, would you be a fan of starting with interleaving, or would you be more a fan of actually we'll we'll learn things to start with more isolated, and then we'll we'll bring the interleaving in through those second or third spaced attempts? Yeah. So. Um... So we're asking, are we, if we're interleaving, are we missing some things? And we can talk about routine, um, routine type, type um, athletics or, or performances. And then 
when do we start interleaving? Is it too much? Should we be interleaving vastly different topics? Um, so the, with the, we'll start with the last one first, because of course you would. Um, mixing, mixing up things that are vastly different might not be as beneficial um, because one of the reasons that interleaving works so well is that it allows you in the education, you know, learning information type realm, it allows you to know when to do what. I would imagine that that's going to be similar in athletics. It may, would make you more flexible going from one thing to the next thing um, in, in a lot of different orders. So putting A and C next to one another and then D and then Z next to one another is going to help you learn those types of transitions that you wouldn't that you wouldn't learn if you always just went in a certain order. Um, so, you know, would it be a good idea to spend five minutes playing football or soccer and then spend five minutes ice skating? I don't know. Probably not. Although that would put spacing in between your practice of the one and practice of the other. So maybe it's okay. But you're right. If you get so like you just do one thing with soccer and then football and then one thing with ice skating and then you switch to the next thing, you might lose a lot of time there. So that might be too much. Um, but what's the perfect amount and when to start interleaving? That's going to depend just like spacing depends. So um, if if it's if it's so bad that there are so many mistakes and you think that the, the learner is practicing the wrong thing because they're just not getting it and then, and then the next thing comes so quickly, you know, we're not talking about 80% here. Maybe we're talking about 30%. That's probably too soon. Um, so as the educator, as the coach, you're kind of playing with the dosage almost and looking to see, is it, is it the right level of difficulty or is it so difficult that we're not actually getting anything? Now we have to keep the understanding of we're not going necessarily for perfect. And it's going to, we are looking for things that will, we're looking for learning increments that are going to come in the long run. So we don't need to look for a hundred percent right now, but we also don't want 10%. So playing with it a little bit, um, and that's where, you know, you know, your athletes best and you know, your sport best. And so, you know, what's going to make sense in each context is going to depend a little bit. And so this, the principles are flexible. Um, but yeah, you don't want to switch too, too, too much. And you don't necessarily want to put in, put things together that are vastly, vastly different unless your goal is to produce spacing, then it might be okay. Um, in terms of the other question, which is about might we miss miss out on something, um, if like for example a routine is that kind of what you were getting at, like a gymnastics routine or you know something where you are supposed to always do things in a specific order? I think it was even in so like, like Tom mentioned the games based approach. I was just thinking if if we only ever do a games based approach, like a totally interleaved approach all of the time. Um, without any focus um, at, at any point um, on so as an example in a, in a game you know passing a ball and then and then you're defending which is completely something that's totally different the next time so is it is it worth actually isolating those things at, at certain times 
Yeah. So I, I think, I think, yeah, I think you would want to isolate those things at times. This is where I think it's a bit different than talking about, say, a math worksheet. Um, because in a games-based approach, it sounds like because things are going to happen more organically, you might actually not hit every single skill that you want to hit in a games-based approach. Whereas when we're talking about interleaving a math worksheet, we're not like deleting random problems. We're just mixing them up. They're all still there. We're just not saying these are the addition problems. Add on this page. These are the subtraction problems. Subtract on this page, right? Um, with, with a games-based approach, those skills are going to have, they're going to approach more organically. And so you might want to identify things that don't come up as often in games and throw them at the learners, but maybe don't tell them that that's what you're doing um, so that they can practice that element of surprise and thinking quickly on their feet, but that you know that they're hitting all of the skills that they need, that they need to. Um, in terms of a routine, so um, my, my track and cross country is quite different from, I also, um, did color guard um, fl flags basically in a marching band, but we did it competitively and we were actually pretty good. We won state all the time. So, um, so I'll, I'll toot my own horn there, but um, you know, we were performing specific routines, but at the same time, you know, there could have been a mistake or something that occurred um, or, you know, something could get caught um, the, you know, the flag, we're talking about like six foot poles that were kind of swinging around and tossing in the air and all of those types of things. Um, there, there could have been errors or mistakes that occurred and that could actually lead to in the middle of a routine, having to approach the next thing from a completely different place. And had we never practiced that, we, that could have thrown, it could have been the end, right? Like, okay, well, the routine's messed up. How do I get back in? It could take quite a while. So by practicing a lot of different moves in different orders during warmups and during drills and those types of things, it makes us better prepared for when something comes at us that is unexpected within a routine. It also makes it easier for us to learn a new routine and pick up a completely different set of, um, set of orders for things. Um, and so I do think it's still useful in that context, but of course, if there are, if your goal is to learn to do a specific set of moves in order, you should spend time learning those specific moves in order. Um, that's often not true in educate. Well, Actually, I'm not even going to say that. I'm sure it is true in a lot of contexts, but a lot of times life is coming at you interleaved um, and you want to be more flexible and apply things in different ways. But if you really do need to learn specific things in order, spend time with that order, but don't do that exclusively because things can happen, right? You can, you can miss the landing in gymnastics and then have to approach the next piece of it from a different place. Having practiced that ahead of time is probably going to help you. Am I speaking the right language here with athletics? Okay. I, this is a bit outside of what I normally do, but I love that. I love that we can kind of sit and talk together and put it together using both of our expertise. That's what bi-directional communication among those of us that do this research and those who are putting it into practice is all about. So. Megan, I feel like this has been, the last hour has been a very public piece of CVD <laughs> from a very personal perspective. Yeah. I'm learning so much as, as we talk and kind of the overarching principles that, that you've gone into detail on around retrieval and spacing and interleaving. 
I think actually with a little bit of thought and a bit of reflection from coaches, that there's some really, really clear links and some really clear bonds between what you've said and how that applies in different contexts and worlds, but how it really translates into coaching. I've, I've made pages of notes about, I'm sat here selfishly thinking about my football practice and what I'm going to go and try and experiment with, with the players. Um, but I think there's just so much in here that, that coaches could start to think about and apply for the way they design their own practice and linked practice. I think that always happens, right? So you sit and you think, how does this apply to my own my own world? Um, and I am not going to be able to think about how this applies to everyone's world. But by having this type of communication, we can apply it in really fun ways. So I, I think that's I think that's great. Sorry, I, I interrupted you a bit, but I was just too excited. No, 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 brilliant. That that's great. And no, I'm I'm as I say, I'm going away thinking about lots of different things, and hopefully for everyone listening this is sparking some ideas and, and some, some different ways to perhaps design and prepare for, for practice and also maybe think about your own learning as a coach and the process that you go through to try and adopt or adapt new ideas to your... Um, I think for me as well, just my, my reflection on, on the conversation is, I think it is, it's for coaches, it's about planning so that a, a lot of this stuff we've just discussed um, hopefully will provoke a bit of thought around how, how do I plan things and not just the session I'm doing tonight, but actually can I kind of plan things across a longer period of time where I am able to, to put in that um, the space practice and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think even, you know, you can plan it all out, but then sometimes things happen organically where it's like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to practice this skill and kind of mixing things in. Um, I think one of the most important things is when you start to get into this area, the question always becomes what's the perfect amount of space. What's the perfect interleaving schedule. I want to get it exactly, exactly right. Um, and I think the thing to remember is that planning is good, but you're not going to be able to plan perfection because we just don't know, um, and there's too many things that can influence, I mean, weather, right? Like weather, you, um, you know, my husband had planned to paint our shed this week. He's off this week. And guess what? It's going to rain all week. And he's like, well, now what am I going to do? I'm like, you're not going to paint the shed. You're going to have to find a different time to do it when you're not off this week or for the, off that week, right? Things happen. Um, and so, the beautiful thing about spacing and interleaving is that is okay because now you'll just flip-flop some orders. You'll do something different. There's a little more space, more interleaving, maybe a little bit less. That's fine. It'll all even out. Don't stress about getting it exactly perfect because we don't, there's no way. And isn't it just a little bit about, I think you mentioned something like this before, just actually, um, just having an awareness of these factors that these these are a thing and and that actually yeah it's it's kind of okay yeah yeah totally being being more intentional i i find when i talk to educators that most are doing a little bit of this at some point in some way accidentally um and so knowing what the principle is behind it and allowing you to do it a little more intentionally can make a big difference and being able to talk about why we're doing those things with the learners is great. Um, and, but it doesn't have to mean a complete overhaul, which is good because who has time for that? 
Brilliant. Well, what a great note to finish on. Um, and a bonus point to anyone listening who can think back to the start of the conversation and remember your surname as well. Maybe. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, well, look, just, just for, for Mark and myself, a huge thank you, Megan, for giving up the last hour or so to talk to us. It's, um, it's been brilliant. And, and as I say, lots of things for, for coaches to go and think about on how this applies to their, their coaching and their practice. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.